Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, Lori LeBay. And for those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations like we're going to today on the radio, we can help remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those living with this disease live with purpose. Together, we can help everyone have a better understanding of the true needs and remove the myths that create such fear and isolation for people. At our core, we believe that collaboratively we will win this battle against dementia. But we also believe strongly that dementia is not a disease of one. It's a disease of society. And so we have to work together. And so all of your likes and clicks and shares through Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and all the other social media platforms have really had a big impact. So kudos to you for sharing the information that we put out um, and that others put out because we never know who in our circle of friends and colleagues are going to need this information next. And we know that we're making a difference here because Dr. Oz and ShareCare named Alzheimer's Speaks as the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's, which was um, just thrilling to get. But again, we didn't do that alone. We did that as a team with you. So I thank you for that. If you haven't already liked and shared um, the episode with your circles, um, if it's a Google circle, if it's a tweet, if it's a LinkedIn group or your Facebook or all of the above, those things do just take seconds to do. I would highly encourage you to do that. Every time I go out and speak, I'm shocked at the number of people who are touched and the people sitting next to them that had no idea that they were touched by this disease. And so once again, the more information that's out there, the more comfortable it will feel for people to um, tap into it when the time is right for them. Today on the show, like every show, we would love to have you be involved. You can call in live at 714 314-364-4757. Again, that number is 714-364-4757. Or you can always use your chat box and put a question or a comment in there, and I will be glad to... um, to read that out loud on the program. 
But before we get started, I also like to just uh, do a shout out to a few organizations. I, I get so many questions all the time of where do I go, how, where do I find some support and good information, you know, in my own neck of the woods. And so, I, you know, I highly recommend that you go to Alzheimer's Disease International. That is the organization of all the Alzheimer's associations throughout the world. So if you're looking for something close to you, um, A, you'll be able to find it there, but B, there's tons of great information. They just uh, did their global report, which is really interesting to read, and they have other other great resources there as well. The Alzheimer's Studies Group, uh, you can find them on Facebook, has a couple of clinical trials out there. One is a new one for frontal temporal lobe. The other is for tau. Um, and the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation is an organization who's been around over 20 years, and their focus is um, non-pharma. So they're really into more holistic things. Uh, what can help you with this disease um, to prevent it or when you have it, um, you know, to live better? And so they talk more about food and exercise, meditation, um, social engagement, and again, have some interesting studies regarding that. And then many people are dealing with specific dementias. You know, there's probably over 100 of them. I don't know if anyone knows for sure the number. I've heard anywhere from 70 to 120 different types of, of dementias out there. But the Lewy body, um, frontal temporal lobe, and then um, aphasia are, are big issues um, with this disease, and each of them has their own organization. Aphasia, um, the National Aphasia Association, is when people are having trouble speaking, and so they have some great resources. The Lewy body dementia and the frontal temporal lobe dementia or vascular dementia are probably the other most common ones that we hear. And then on a... Um, kind of engagement side, Music First with Coral Health um, has what they call kind of music prescriptions um, that can help people go to sleep and eat and wake up, calm down. Music has such a big influence. So, you know, go to Coral Health, that's C-O-R-O Health, um, and check out Music First. And then Jane Snyder has developed Puzzle With Me, which are um, puzzles with uh, less pieces, uh, yet they're bigger and they're more age-appropriate. And then Jiminy Wicket does some croquet, which is great because it's an intergenerational piece that everybody can uh, take part in and is extremely beneficial. And last, I, I just want to mention the Purple Angel Project Um Everyone can get involved with that. The purple angel is the new global symbol for dementia. We'd like that to be as recognized as the pink ribbon for breast cancer. And if you're interested in that, just go to alzheimerspeaks.com and then go to our about page. And there's a, a page on that. You can email me. I can get you specifics on that. We'd love to have you have you join the cause. So let me go ahead and introduce our, our first guests here today. I, I'm really excited to have them on uh, for a couple of different reasons. Um, one, Michelle um, 
Remold is actually an intern with me with Alzheimer's Speak. She does an exceptional job and is ha, has just been a great asset here to us at Alzheimer's Speaks. And she writes a, a weekly blog for us that always gets great, uh, great attention and interest. Um, Michelle graduated from the University of Northern Iowa in 2012 with her Bachelor of Arts in Gerontology and um, Social Science and a minor in Family Studies. She's currently working on her Master's degree in aging studies and is an administrative coordinator at the Northfield Senior Center here in Minnesota. Um, She is just an exceptional, exceptional young adult, and I'm just very, very proud to, to be associated with her. So, Michelle, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? I'm doing wonderful. I'm doing wonderful. I'm going to go ahead and... um, introduce our second guest here um and uh, this is kind of interesting because our second guest is dr elaine eshval and she is an associate professor of gerontology and family studies and has coordinated uh uni's gerontology program since 2007 and the program has more than doubled in size under her leadership. She has her master's and Ph.D. in human development and family studies from Iowa State University. And she's been published in a ton of journals and um, just does a, a is is very renowned in in her field. She's been in the Journal of Community Health Nursing, the Journal of Family Social Work, uh Gerontology and Geriatrics Education, and the Journal of uh Community Psychology. She has more than 25 research publications um in empirical journals and she frequently collaborates with um, many of the continuing care communities and adult day centers and hospices. So welcome, uh, Dr. Eshbaugh. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Lori. Well, I'm I'm excited to have you here. Now, if I'm not mistaken, you were you were Michelle's professor. Uh, that is correct. Going to school. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> We've had the, a chance for the three of us to sit down uh, on one occasion when uh, Dr. Eshbaugh came and, and spoke at Northfield uh, Senior Center, and I was really impressed with with your talk. And you had quite the turnout there, which was which was wonderful. We did. Uh, so yeah, it was it was really really great to see. Um, it, this show actually, you know, in talking with Michelle was kind of her idea, um, and so I'm going to throw a question out to you first, Michelle. Um, okay. Because when we when we talked about doing this, you you really felt strongly that there was a need for for kids and students to understand um, the importance of people um, getting into gerontology. Can you tell us a a little background on why you feel so strongly about that? I do. Um, I guess my passion for it started uh, back when my grandpa was diagnosed. He was diagnosed with Alzheimer's when I was about seven or eight, and he passed away when I was 17, so it's a disease I kind of grew up knowing um, and I I just loved interacting with them, while my brother, on the other hand, was a little bit more uncomfortable with it, and he still is, when we go visit um, nursing homes, he's not as comfortable with people who have dementia. 
now, um, but I think it's something that we need to uh, be able to um, kind of understand and just be a little bit more comfortable dealing with uh, since the older population is going to start growing with the baby boomers. And it's just, it doesn't seem like it's a disease that people really want to acknowledge or feel comfortable saying, I I have it, my parents have it, my grandparents have it. It's just kind of a more hushed disease. Mm-hmm. Now, Elaine, I know that you also feel that there's going to be a greater calling for individuals who are qualified to, to work, um, you know, with those um, dealing with, with Alzheimer's and dementia. Can you give us a little um, insight from, from your angle, uh, where you're coming from on that? Oh, definitely. And I think, you know, I'm really fortunate to have worked with Michelle and students like Michelle who want to devote their career to working with individuals who have Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, But one of my other thoughts is not everyone is going to have a career where 40 hours a week they work directly with or um, on the behalf of those with dementia. Um, But many people in their career um, could benefit from knowledge of dementia um, simply because with our growing, um, our aging baby boom population, um, you know, unfortunately, I, you know, although I do see a cure for Alzheimer's in the future, you know, I, I do think the next several decades we will see an increase in older adults who are impacted by the disease. Um, so if you're a counselor, um, if you are a social worker, if you, um, one of my um, more interesting connections on campus has been um, coming into contact with the interior design division, mm-hmm. um, designing homes for individuals who have dementia, divine, designing memory care units, designing nursing homes for individuals who have dementia. Um, if you're going to work as an occupational therapist or a physical therapist, um, if you're going to be a dietitian, nutritionist, so it's not just individuals who want to major in gerontology and devote their whole career to dementia. It's people in other fields who not only can make a difference by learning about dementia, but also can make themselves much more marketable by learning about dementia. I, I agree. This this field touched so many uh, on so many levels, and now with dementia friendly communities, um, you know, businesses and communities at large are really going to have to work this in. Um, it's happening, you know, big time over in the UK, and is just starting to catch on here in the US. But the understanding is a global need um, on on all different levels at all different ages. You know. Um, um, even if you're um, a teacher of elementary school, uh, school kids, you know, it's starting to come into the classrooms. You know, people are starting to talk about it more there as well. And so it, it really is pretty endless in terms of the impact um, that this disease is going to have. And so the knowledge base, um, like you said, if you if somebody goes into it, you know, um, at a 40-hour-a-week uh deal or maybe they just decide to do some volunteering. Um, you know, it's it's going to be advantageous um for them. Elaine, can you tell us what types of positions right now are available for students that have training with Alzheimer's and related dementias? Can you give us some specifics there? Well, I coordinate our gerontology major, um, and currently we have the only gerontology undergraduate major in the state of Iowa. 
Um, and although I think you mentioned in the intro we have um, doubled our size, that still means we only have about 50 majors at any time, maybe a few more. Um, so really, we're not turning out um, enough students to meet the demand in gerontology. Um, the students that graduate from our gerontology program that are um, interested in working with people who have dementia um, work with the people with dementia in a variety of different ways. Some of them will do case management, um, perhaps with an area agency on aging, and they will try to meet the needs of individuals in their homes, um, connect people with resources. And not all of those individuals have dementia, but quite a few of them will have dementia. Um, many of our graduates will go on and be nursing home administrators. We do have a nursing home administration program. Um, obviously, you need a, a very strong basis in dementia, especially because more and more nursing homes and assisted livings are creating dementia-specific or memory care communities, and there's a lot of room for innovation and growth, and there are some really exciting things going on in that field. We also have students like Michelle who have gone on to graduate school, Michelle's um, graduate work is in aging studies. We also have students who have either majored or minored in gerontology um, who are going on in speech-language pathology, um, perhaps because those individuals do work quite closely with those who have Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, occupational therapy, we have gerontology students who have gone on in counseling and really want to work with older adults and families who are trying to cope with the demands of Alzheimer's and related dementias. So there really are a variety of different careers out there. Um, some people want to work directly with those who have dementia one-on-one -on -one or in small groups. I have other students who really like the idea of changing policies um, or creating ideas that will then indirectly impact families and individuals affected by the disease. So it's a really exciting field to get into right now because there's just a lot of growth and a lot of innovation. I think we have a lot of time to make up um, because we have not really um, in this area um, done work to to the level that we need to have done with our aging baby boom population. I I totally agree. Um, Michelle, can you give uh, give our audience a little more detail of you know when you went to school, where you started out, and you know did you did you stay firm with where you where you thought you wanted to be once you kind of got into the school and learned a little bit more, and um, or did your path change, and and if so, how? Yeah, my path definitely changed. I um, went in undecided, leaning more towards um, accounting was my going to be my degree. Um, and then I realized I really wasn't very good at business. And um, when I was looking at schools, I always told my mom that I would love to volunteer at nursing homes. I could see myself doing that forever. I thought it would be really fun. So she kind of encouraged me to look at the gerontology program. Uh, so I met with uh, Dr. Eshba I don't know how many times before I finally <laughs> actually declared it as my major. Um, and once I got into it, I realized that I really did like doing gerontology, but then I still wasn't sure where I would go with it. Um, and then I interned at the Senior Center in Faribault, um, and that I was like, I would love to work at a senior center. They, It was great staff. The people were friendly, they had a ton of fun, and I was like, that would be where I want to go. Um, they also 
had me create a memory trunk program, and that got me into Alzheimer's wings, which is where my passion for Alzheimer's was really affirmed, and that finally led me to um, internships at, like, Alzheimer's Association. Um, I took the memory trunk back to UNI and did that for my last two years in dementia care wings at facilities across there, and that's really how I finally understood where I wanted to go with um, the degree and what I wanted to do going forward. Can you tell our audience, Michelle, what the memory trunk is and how, how it I came can. to be? Yep. Um, when I started my internship, we had to um, create a um, our, we had a project that we had to accomplish, and it had to be something that uh, wherever we interned could either use or it could be a one-time presentation, but it had to benefit them. And so when I started the um, senior center indicated that this was something they would like to test out and see if they could get their own volunteers to do it after some guidelines had been established. And so I did that there. And what it is is I create theme discussion trunks. And so we had like a picnic theme and a farm theme where the two I did there. So I had a picnic basket full of a bunch of different picnic items and I went to nursing homes, and we talked about, you know, what were your uh, memories of picnics growing up? Did you go on picnics and that kind of stuff? And then one of my um, fellow students at the end of the summer asked me what I had done for my internship and was really interested in learning more and doing that. So that led us to back to Iowa with it, where Dr. Eschbach still does the uh, program at the Adult Day Center and a couple nursing homes that occasionally get in touch with her. But it was a great way for me to kind of redefine how interacting with Alzheimer's patients worked. I always kind of knew the basics, but when you're doing a program like that, you kind of learn that you can't have very much structure. And it really made me more, I think, compassionate and understanding about where they're coming from. Okay, well that that makes a makes a lot of sense, and I think most of us, you know, we kind of twist and turn. We think we got it all figured out, and, and then something kind of pulls us down a different road. And it's funny you said uh, you thought you were going to go into accounting because that's what I thought I was going to go into too. <laughs> and and I think so many times, you know, we we go down paths because we're told we're good at it, but it really isn't necessarily mm-hmm. our passion. And um, and so I think sometimes we lead people astray in terms of, of um, life's work um, because they're good at something, but they might not have been exposed or really found that thing that they're passionate about. And I can, I can tell with Michelle from the work that I've done with her, and I'm sure you can too, Dr. Ashbaugh, the passion um, inside this girl. I mean, she's going to do some big things. Um, I think in the in the industry, and she already is um, starting Definitely. to starting to show um, what she's able to do. Um, one thing that I, I I do want to mention is M- Michelle has um, taken on um, starting a memory cafe, which is a, a big deal. Um, and Michelle, I'm just going to have you talk a little bit because <laughs> sometimes I think. Um, you know, when when people are looking at where do they want to go in, uh, you know, where do they want to go on this path, 
you know, and what mm-hmm. can they actually do. If you can kind of talk about a little bit about the process and how that makes you feel in terms of pulling this together and, you know, um, getting something ignited kind of on a ground level and, and really being, you know, you really were the, the spark that, that got it started in Northfield. So um, tell our mm-hmm. audience a little bit about that process. Yeah, um, when I started... Um, actually, when I interviewed for the job, they kind of asked me what my interests were, and I said, you know, I was um, very interested in Alzheimer's. I spend a lot of times reading books on Alzheimer's. I'll go to presentations, and I it's what I spend my free time learning about. Um, and they had told me that they weren't didn't really have anything focused yet on Alzheimer's. Uh, the, the very active senior center, they have pools and fitness classes and no, nothing for anybody with um, Alzheimer's. So right after I started, they asked me if I had heard anything about memory cafes and what I thought about them. Um, but it's kind of something they haven't had very much luck with, support groups in the past, and so it was something they were a little leery about trying. Um, so we started by having Dr. Eschbach come up because I figured if I could generate some interest in Alzheimer's, that we would at least be able to find a core group who could really use the services that a memory cafe would provide. So a support group type setting, but they can bring um, the person with dementia or Alzheimer's with so they don't have to worry about finding someone to stay with them or having to leave them home alone. Um, And I had you, Lori, come down and talk, and they really got on board at that point and were excited. They actually gave me, I think, like a three-week span where I had to, um, find a group, get everything going, and the response has been overwhelming. If people aren't registering, I've been getting numerous emails from uh, people in the community thanking me for starting it because they think it's something they need, and even though they aren't affected, they know people who are affected by it and that they think could benefit from it. So so how has this, because I know that this, is, this isn't an easy process. You know, it never is when you're trying to start <laughs> something new. And, and when you're the new kid on the block and, you know, you're probably the youngest one in the in the group too, you know, and, and all, yep. all, all adds into the mix there. So how does it feel to see this really come into life for you? I I find it exciting. I was a little frustrated trying to get stuff started at first because I – they actually, when I started, were trying to run a program, a music-based one, where they could come and listen to music, and it was a three-week thing, and nobody signed up, and mm-hmm. nobody came, and so I was like, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. I don't know how I'm going to start any of this stuff, um, but the support from the other staff members and the director here has been great, and so I think it kind of gave me more confidence, too, in starting something like this, cause, especially since it's something I want to do um down the road, like own an adult day center, I would love to run one. I think that it just kind of gave me the boost in confidence that, you know, if I put my mind to it, I can actually start it Mm -hmm. and get something going. Wonderful. Well, that's great. Now, um, Elaine, we've got a... um a question from our audience here, I should say, Dr. Eschbau. Uh, sorry yeah, for confusing, confusing our audience here. What, what would you prefer <laughs> me to call you? 
Elaine is absolutely fine. <laughs> okay, okay, go. Um, Elva is asking, she says, I'm curious. She says, at least in Texas where I live, there's no licensing for gerontologists. So anyone can call themselves a gerontologist. So what does the title really represent? And, you know, is it, uh, what are licensing criteria to your knowledge in terms of using that term? Um, as far as I know, there's no specific criteria for who can call themselves a gerontologist. There are certain um, roles, jobs, careers within gerontology that you would have to meet a criteria to call yourself. But the way I understand it, I mean, I I would hope that no one would call themselves a gerontologist without having some education in the area. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I really don't know statewide or nationwide for that term that there are any actual um, requirements. Okay, that's a that's a good thing to point out. I I was not aware of that. Um, you know, and you think that I would be, but I I I just assumed that it was um, a title that was licensed. So I'm glad Elva brought that up. So that's something that you know people may want to check into a little bit further. You know, when they're when they're working with somebody, um, asking you know what are their credentials because you know anytime you're working with the, the senior population or any population actually, I mean there's there's always people that are out there to do a lot of good and there are a lot of people out there just purposely looking to scam and do harm and so you've got to be smart in terms of who who you decide to work with um in in any type of in any type of situation there um Elaine, can you tell us in terms of you know college you know majors um that would really benefit from the expertise in dementia we talked about it uh, you know a little bit in terms of you know even um you know design and um and you know even architecture and um mm -hmm. you know building design and things um has it has it trickled down at all in terms of i know some nursing programs are getting really specific um having some dementia programs um but even with uh the doctors there seems to still be a lack of education in terms of you know, because there's so much for them to learn. You know, this is just another right. another piece there. Um, what's, what would you like to see, I guess, in terms of majors and in, in taking on and tackling this? Um, that's a great question. You know, I, um, I see a lot of need um, in various healthcare professions for m more education on dementia. And I'm not just talking about specialties that generally focus on those that have dementia, like neurology, um, psychiatry. Uh, but, I mean, even simple things like if someone is going to a dentist um, and they're showing early signs of Alzheimer's and you give them a medication to take with them when they go home, are they going to be able to follow up and take that medication? Um, how do you assess if um, someone is is able to follow those directions in the healthcare field? Um, so it's not just you know those doctors who focus on dementia. It's really a lot of different areas of healthcare need a little bit more expertise in that area, and they, it just really hasn't been provided up until this point. Um, one of the areas too that that I think um 
probably needs a little bit more emphasis um, in aging and dementia is also within the field of social work. Um, mm-hmm. Many social workers, um, and this is what I find around our campus, many social workers when they graduate would like to work with children. They'd like to work in the foster care system or um, you know, the Department of Human Services or adoption. But when they finish, they realize that more and more many of these positions are with um, older adults. So many social workers who will work in hospitals um, will assist individuals with discharge and making a discharge plan and trying to connect individuals with community resources that will help them and keep them at home um, so they don't end up back in the hospital. Uh, or finding placements for individuals who can't go right home. And Alzheimer's and dementia is a big piece of that, and understanding the progress of the disease and the needs of someone with a disease um, is a, a really big piece of that as well. Um, pharmacists, um, I think there's a tremendous problem with older adults in terms of complying with medication. Um, and sometimes this is because of cost or sometimes an individual doesn't think they need a particular prescription or they don't like the side effects. Um, but some of it is also because if someone has dementia, they may not be able to take their prescription as as it is prescribed for them. And this becomes an issue for pharmacists. So I really think within various aspects of healthcare, there's a need for developing you know, a broad knowledge of Alzheimer's and dementia, but also specific strategies um, for assisting individuals who are at various stages of the disease and for supporting their families as well. I think one of the big gaps we have, um, and Lori, you can probably speak to that, you know, as, as being a family member of someone who, is, who has had dementia, but you go to the doctor and you get a diagnosis and okay, yeah, you have Alzheimer's or you have Lewy body dementia and they send you home and no one teaches you how to live with the disease and how to live with joy and laughter every day um, despite the disease. We don't have any, you know, if, if you have a knee replacement, you have physical therapy. You have someone who comes to your house to check on you. We don't have that with dementia. So there's really still this huge gap we have um, between, you know, diagnosis and someone going home to live their everyday life, and they may have many, many more years left of life, and we don't provide them the resources they need to enjoy those years like they could. Yeah, that's very, very true. I it just posted... Um on my blog uh over in australia it's a it's a fabulous fabulous film something you might even be able to use um in in your teachings um but it's all about engagement and why it's so important and the in mm-hmm. in really focuses on the purpose of life and the purpose mm-hmm. of life doesn't change for any of us if we no matter what kind of chronic illness we get or what type of situation we run into we all want to feel purposeful and so yeah. it's pretty amazing um it, i think it's like 17 minutes long what they have done um with people with dementia um to be purposeful and you you hear them talk and you see i mean one person jumping out of a plane because that's what they wanted to do and and making these dreams come true. So they've kind of incorporated, um, you know, our, what is it that we do for the kids with the the miracles? Um, Oh, what is it? The wish, wish, 
wish oh, the make a wish. The make make a wish for children and have kind of incorporated that into this residential community. Um and it's it's pretty neat the things that they have done and why they've done them and the conversations that are had because of these um because of these activities. Um, you know, I mean it's just how would you ever, ever forget? You know, something like that. I mean, that's something everyone is always going to talk about and um, really keep a memory alive and, and help people, you know, stay connected. And so it's pretty fascinating the the different types of things that are that are happening when people get creative. And, you know, I think that's, um, you know, you talked, Elaine, about the opportunities. There's so many opportunities out there. Um, and I just hope that we don't, you know, we we don't end up thinking that we're too in the box or too structured, um, so that we lose that that ability to be creative. Because I really think that's where the power of the connections come, and and that's where the power of new services is developed, um, you know, in people, and, and uh, is is very important um, to not be. Um, to ignite passions versus kind of squash them um, in some ways. So, do you do you see in in school right now that that there's um, really this creative element in terms of moving forward and you know looking at a broad span of of how things can be changed? Given our and again, this is my personal opinion. Given our healthcare system pretty much a mess. <laughs> um, you know, that's a good question. I I think, you know, we're we're looking for new solutions to problems, but you know, I do think in terms of healthcare, we do have some regulations that are limiting and protocols and policies that are limit are limiting. Um, and you know, I have great students like Michelle who have come through my program and they have really influenced me in terms of being more positive about the future. Um, you know, and not just for people who have dementia, but for all older adults and kind of redefining aging um, and thinking out of the box and, and not letting our stereotypes of individuals who are older and individuals with, with dementia kind of bind us to what to what we've always done in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that that was really a good point that you brought up about, um, you know, the the regulations that we have to, we know we have to be responsible, you know, too. Um, right. But one of the things that I liked was even with Michelle in terms of her situation, she was, uh, you know, she created this memory trunk. And, you know, it's just a nice creative piece for engagement that I think is just absolutely, you know, wonderful for people to be able to be part of and, and um, take part in. With that, um, <laughs> Michelle, are you still with us? I am. You are okay. So, what are what are your thoughts in terms of teachings these days? Um, do you um, is there anything you see that's that's missing that you would like to see added in terms of of gerontology? Is there enough um, real based information? And th- I think things are always open to change and. Because um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm seeing more classes, even just like with the the virtual dementias that are are happening, um, kind of the stimulation uh, or simulations that you know appear to be like dementia. Um, 
of things that are are not just um, standard book statistics and research and process, um, but getting people to feel a little bit more. Um, what was your thought going through school? Um, I when I first went into it, I just knew that I wanted to work with older adults. So from that aspect. Gerontology was great for me. Um, my favorite classes would have to be, though, once we got into I did um, Alzheimer's and related dementias, um, and all my research papers and stuff pretty much were geared towards Alzheimer's because it was a strong interest of mine. Um, but Elaine did a fantastic job of incorporating Alzheimer's into all of our coursework we watched many videos. Um, we all had to read books, and a lot of them were Alzheimer's um, memoirs and stuff. And so I think just incorporating little things like that are always helpful, and then people kind of figure out that that's something they want to learn more about or do more with. Um, mm-hmm. I know Dr. Elaine did, um, when I was down there, they did one of the simulations of what it's like to have Alzheimer's. Um, with, like, the gloves and the glasses and stuff. And I think those are all um, key when it comes to teaching people about Alzheimer's and dementia. Mm-hmm. Elaine, what do you see the kids like the most in terms of, of um, you know, because I'm, I'm sure you can see a difference in terms of, you know, just when people are touched by, by various pieces. Um, yeah, I I feel like... If if you have never been around someone who has Alzheimer's or a related dementia, there is really no substitute for doing a volunteer experience or some type of, type of community service to put yourself into that position to see how the disease impacts someone. Um, and when that's not possible, I've actually used a lot of videos. Um, the Alzheimer's Project, which is the HBO documentary, series um, has been fantastic. Um, I use that in one of my classes, and I have a lot of students who have just not had the exposure to individuals who have dementia, and it's really eye-opening for them to see people at various parts of the disease because they think this disease is just about forgetfulness. Oh, Grandma, Mm -hmm. Grandpa, they're going to get forgetful. Um, And they don't realize it's more than forgetfulness. You know, in the end, it's about total brain failure, and your brain is the control center for your body. Um, They don't understand that Alzheimer's is a terminal disease. That's very surprising to many of my students when we talk about that, because society has this misconception that you're going to just be very absent-minded. You know, you're going to be very slow in the grocery store. Maybe you're not going to be able to drive. Uh, But they don't understand the full impact of the disease. And as much as you read about it, until you see someone at various stages of the disease, it's really difficult to understand what this disease is. Yeah, and that that's a good point. I would imagine there are some students after kind of seeing or feeling the difference um, of of the disease, you know, because there's a, a, you know, to me there's a couple of ways to teach. One is kind of through the head and the other one's through the heart. And I think when people have an opportunity to process and really feel what it's like, um, and and empathize with it, and that kind of compassion comes out. I'm sure there's some people that go, mm, "This isn't what I thought it was going to be," and others mm-hmm. that get really excited. Of man, this is this is really what I want to do. <laughs> do. Do you see both of both sides of the the coin happening oh, there? 
Yeah, I definitely do. And I think one of the most common misperceptions that I have to get past in convincing students that working with older adults, and particularly older adults with dementia, is um, you know a rewarding career path, is just simply that it doesn't have to be depressing. You know, mm-hmm. I think of, and I think Michelle will relate to this, we have one particular mm-hmm. um, adult day services here in town, and we go there every month. Michelle started it, and now I go with some students every month. I tell you what, usually it's the highlight of my month. You know, um, they're yep. they're amazing. It's it's positive. They're fun. Um, and I think one of the things for me that has been very important about working with individuals with dementia, um, and this will show my personal weakness, is that it reminds me to focus on the moment and to live in the moment because all we have is right now. So it's about the human connection with that individual being right there, right now, you know, not thinking about what you have to do later and not thinking about yesterday. Maybe that individual doesn't remember yesterday. Um, And that's okay because right now we're connecting and I'm showing them that I think they're a valuable person and I'm enjoying the time we have together. And for me that's a really important lesson because – you know, that that's really not my personality. My personality is to make a list of all the things I have to do and get them done, and then I'm going to think about what I'm going to do tomorrow and assess what I did yesterday. And um, really that's, you know, sometimes not the best way to live your life. And I feel like people with Alzheimer's and dementia remind me of that every day. Yeah, they they really do. Um, it, again, it's I think, you know, there's great lessons of um, of gratitude, you know, with illness, if it's dementia or something else that, you know, instead of so many times we focus on what is lost instead of what we already had, that many people never had um, to begin with. And, you know, that being grateful, you know, for that and then realizing that all relationships are going to change. And, you know, dementia dementia can be another way that, that people change. But that doesn't mean that your relationship or your connection has to end. It doesn't mean that you have to stop laughing and having fun. Um, and, and I think Michelle really gets that. Um, and, you know, she speaks so highly of, of you and, and your teachings and, and how you've really inspired her <clears throat> in this area to to embrace and make life better um you know for all and it's it's fun to see um young adults get that um and really embrace it and then with Michelle just going out there and i i, I mean this girl is so busy uh, i know so many, so many things um in between multiple jobs and engaging and researching and reading and um you know she just never says no she's just like let me at it let me at it you know let's try her how do we do this and and she's not afraid to ask for help um but you can just hear her her passion and her you know go-to-ness with all of this it's it's really it's it's very fun to be around and it's it, it she inspires me <laughs> You know, to see that kind I of I feel energy, the same. You know, gives me hope because I, you know, you look at the numbers out there of the people that are being diagnosed with dementia right now, and you look at the numbers of, of skilled um, care, and it's very limited. And, you know, the, we, we need a lot more um, kids getting into this field and understanding. We also need a lot of of just adults in general um, getting more educated and aware because this is a disease of of society. It, it is going to take a village, 
you know, there isn't just one answer um, to do this. And so it's important for people to get involved, um, get knowledgeable. And, and, you know, maybe your career you're going to decide isn't going to be in dementia, but that doesn't mean that Mm -hmm. you can't help promote dementia-friendly communities and um, have a compassionate ear and heart or or maybe even help with fundraising. Um, A lot of us, you know, aren't necessarily in uh, the you know the the medical industry for breast cancer but we we still support it um we're not afraid to talk about it and we have the conversations and and that in and of itself is in in my eyes massively huge just having the conversation um yeah. but if we can I was, I was just going to add, too, very much along those lines about just creating a society that is more aware and more dementia-friendly. Um, one one of the things I've been noticing lately in talking to caregivers, and this is not just caregivers of those with dementia, but caregivers of people with cancer, um, with HIV, um, with multiple sclerosis, whatever it may be, is um, many times workplaces are labeled as family-friendly, but what mm-hmm. they actually mean by family-friendly is they are friendly for young adults who have young children. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's very easy for them maybe to get time off or work a flexible schedule, and their, their, empl- their coworkers and employers understand that. Um, but from what I hear from individuals, it sometimes tends to be a little bit more difficult. If you have a loved one who has dementia and you get a call in the middle of the day that maybe they're outside in shorts in the winter, you know, or something like that is going on, and I think... In workplaces, we need to be more sensitive and understanding because um, helping your parent, your grandparent, your aunt, your uncle, if they're in, you know, um, a situation where they have dementia or another health crisis, we don't tend to value that like we do as parenting. We're not at a point in our society where we're really prepared to support that in the workplace. And I think we need to, as coworkers and as colleagues, um, learn to support that a little bit more and have some more understanding because I think people, until they're in that position, don't really get how challenging that is. I, I agree with that very much. Um, Michelle, did you have anything you wanted to add on that? I don't. I just, I agree. Um, I think my thing that I've been thinking about when I'm blogging is we always talk about making people um, learn more about disease education, but then the thing that always comes to my mind, how do we do it if they aren't willing? And so that's kind of been my Mm -hmm. thought process lately because we can preach to the choir all we want, but if people aren't willing to learn or take what they're learning and put it into use, you know, is it actually helping? Mm -hmm. But I think it's definitely something that needs to be done. We need to um, understand that, you know, caregiving isn't just kids. It's for spouses and parents and grandparents and making it easy for people to work and be a caregiver. And we just need to increase awareness, I think. Yeah. Well, and um, Alva had noted here, you know, that she said sometimes some of her her friends who have early diagnosis get get aggravated with. She's noted the Alzheimer's Association here, but it can it can be any any person or any um, business who represents um, Alzheimer's as end stage. You know, and mm-hmm. and I think that that's really changed. Uh, you know, changing quite a bit. I know here in Minnesota, um, a few years back, you know, when they went um, before Congress, I mean, they had uh, people with early onset um, up on stage, 
um, to say, hey, you know, things things are different. Um, but we've got a long ways to go. When it's been pitched that long and when we've all believed it that long, that it's just an old person's disease and it's end stage of life and there's nothing we can do and, you know, that's just kind of kind of the way it goes. Um, you know, it's going to take a while to correct that. Um, and it's going to, mm-hmm. again, take take conversations like like these um you know and and more and more influence um you know from schools at at all ages to get people interested um Elaine do you know if there's any work being done um from colleges to try to get kids at, at a younger level interested in gerontology at all and um yeah, there there is an association for gerontology in in higher education, and the goal of the organization we are a member of that organization um, is to promote careers in gerontology. And I will tell you, every summer, I've probably told Michelle this before. I I work summer orientation here at UNI, and you know I see a lot of students in a lot of different majors in the role that I play. And every summer I sit there and I wait for all my gerontology majors to come. <laughs> And to be honest, I'm lucky if I get one or two incoming gerontology students each semester. Typically, I do get my students, like I got Michelle, um, who, you know, they come here in a different major, and then they realize, oh, you know, this major isn't right. What else is out there? Um, And then they go searching, and and hopefully they find me. Um, But it's, you know, there are so few people who who graduate high school and say, I want to be a gerontologist. They don't even know Mm -hmm. what the word means. Mm-hmm. Um, and many times the students we do get coming in as freshmen, they're here because they have a family member who works in the field, and they realize it's a very rewarding field. They are um, excited about what's what's going on and have been really interested in the field. Um, I I will call myself a nursing home brat, and that is because um, when I was a kid, my mom was an activity director at a nursing home, and now we usually say something like a life enrichment coordinator, but um, in the 80s. She was an activity director, and I hung out at the nursing home all day. And I'm very comfortable around older adults. And I think that a lot of young people are not comfortable around older adults. And what Mm -hmm. I think it comes back to is, you know, we all know what it was like to be a kid. We have been a kid. But how many of us know what it's like to be a 90-year-old? We don't know. We haven't been there. So it makes us uncomfortable in relating to someone who's older. Um, And sometimes it helps a lot to just remember, you know, I'm 36. They were 36. They know, Mm -hmm. you know, they may know what it's like to be 36, even though I don't know what it's like to be 90. And I think it begins much earlier in life um, just having young children develop a level of comfort about being around older adults. And that's Uh something that we don't have in our society because we think it's bad to get old, you know, and we stigmatize Mm -hmm. older adults. And I think really that's, that's what it all goes back to is we have this level of discomfort being around older adults because, first of all, it reminds us that we're going to get old someday. Or hopefully we are, you know, and, and that's better than the alternative. So no one wants to get old, but, you know, what alternative do we have? Um, yep. The alternative is worse, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yep. So I think it, it really starts much younger than when I start working with people is just having that level of comfort, um, you know, working with an older population. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, agree. There is so much fear around the elderly and, and how how we treat them and uh, how we're supposed to interact with them. And, you know, they're such a gift to us. I mean, they're loaded with so much information and um, beautiful stories and, and history and life lessons and things to share. And, you know, I, personally, I would love to see a lot more intergenerational things um, be created. And and we're seeing, I think, more of that with daycares next to, um, you know, memory cares or assisted livings. And, and um, we're seeing some of the senior kind of leaning posts where students can just come and talk, you know, to someone who's safe and will keep things confidential. Um, but there's there's so much more that we could do. And I think as a society, we've, we've gotten away from um, who we really are, you know, when, when America was started over here. I mean, we, we were um, thick in community, and we helped one another out, and, you know, we didn't discard our, our elderly. You know, we, we took care of everyone, you know, chipped in and, and took care, and I think we need to kind of get back to that. And, and I think some of the economics of today's society is going to almost force that back on us if we're ready or not. Um, you know, to to look at things, as, you know, in a different in a different light. There. Um, well, I can't believe our hour is just about up. Um, Elaine, can you tell us if a student is interested in a career in working with people who have Alzheimer's or dementia? You know, what what might they want to major in, and what types of classes should they take um, to help them along in that process? Um, you know, if you're talking about a college or a university that has a gerontology program, I think that's typically the place to start. But not all people who want to work with older adults do or should major in gerontology. Um, so you can talk about majoring um, potentially in psychology or social work, communicative disorders, um, Leisure services is a big one um, as well, particularly for programming for, for older adults. Um, you know, even dietetics, if you're interested in nutrition for older adults and those who have dementia. Um, I do think, you know, most people don't realize the wide range of careers you can go into um, within the field of, of gerontology. Um, so I think it's it's a great idea to volunteer with the population that you want to work with and then talk to the individuals who are in careers about those career paths that they've had and about their journeys, and try to find your own niche and what really excites you about that field. Um, so there are a lot of different ways that we can assist people as they age. And I think we often, you know, we only think of career paths in nursing homes. Um, and we have to remember that when we look at the older adult population, those who are 65 plus, only about 4% of them live in a nursing home. Um, so there are many individuals in the community serving and providing services to older adults. Um, yes, there are jobs in nursing homes, but just because you have a degree in gerontology, that doesn't mean that you are going to work in a nursing home by any stretch of the imagination. That's one of the major misconceptions about the field. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really, really good point. Um, Michelle, what's, uh, what other things do you think are maybe some misconceptions that should be talked about in terms of getting into this field? Um, I think right now, I mean, I just know from applying to jobs, it's not 
a degree that people are necessarily seeking as of yet, so it doesn't look like there are job opportunities unless they're specifically asking for someone who has a gerontology uh, degree, which I came across a few. Um, but I know when I applied at our local clinic, it definitely came in handy because one of the things to do was uh, care coordination. And so the having a background in uh, gerontology and then wanting to work with older adults helped me kind of find a niche that they too were like, oh, you'd be really good at doing this because you have this background. And so I think, and I know I had a panic attack when I was about to graduate because I was like, I don't know where I'm going to find a job. If I'm <laughs> going to find a job, what am I going to do? Um, but there's definitely jobs out there. They just take time to find. And then I think employers kind of realize that, oh, this would be a degree that will help us um, in the long run. And so I think that's one of people just don't think there's jobs out there, and there undoubtedly are. Uh-huh. Well, and I think, you know, if people, you know, kind of get their toe in the water, too, there's a lot of people out there that will help them look for jobs as well. There's a lot of connections to be made. And and um, like Elaine said, there's, there's so many... Um, different types of positions from, you know, it could be marketing, it could be exercise is a huge thing with fall prevention on getting people stronger, um, you know, the pharmacy, the social services. The, I mean, it, it really is pretty endless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, where you know it, this almost can't hurt you in in any mm-hmm. field, you know, to have yeah. to have this information. Um, Michelle, anything um, you want to um, sum up here? We're just at the end of our hour here. That uh, any any tidbits you'd like to give to maybe students who are thinking about um, getting into this field, or maybe people who are considering hiring a student. Mm-hmm. Any words of wisdom? Um, I, definitely, I definitely think volunteering is a huge part of it. Volunteer as much as you can. I'm My internship with you is my third internship. I don't think that you can have too much experience when you're um, looking at something you're passionate about. And so I would just say volunteer and seek out the opportunities to do what you think um, you want to do as a career. Okay, good advice. How about you, Elaine? Anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, you know, I think you said something up front that, that really kind of um, rang true with me, and that's you said so many of us are touched by Alzheimer's and dementia, and yet although so many of us are touched, I think as a society we're still tremendously unprepared um, mm-hmm. for this, and I want people to ask themselves how they can be a part of the solution, and it may not be going into a career in gerontology. Maybe it's just being more understanding in your own workplace of individuals who are caregiving for an older adult relative or a parent. Um, you know, and, and maybe it's just when you are at the grocery store and someone is in front of you and they're they're an older person who's having trouble counting their money out, um, maybe thinking, you know, I, I'm not really in that much of a hurry. You know, maybe they are in the early stages of dementia. I can just take a deep breath. It'll be fine. Um, you know, so what can you do in in your own community, your own workplace, to make the world just a more dementia-friendly place um, mm-hmm. and to help support families and individuals who are going through dementia. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Wonderful. Now, um, I, I listed on the website ways that people can go ahead and um, get a hold of you in terms of uh, your email addresses and things there. So if um, if you guys want to just, any, anyone interested, you can just click on that and, and shoot them an email. Um, is there any other, is there a website or anything else that you'd like to give people for either of you or a phone number you'd like to give out as well or just do the email? Um, I would say if you go to um, uni.edu, um, and that is the University of Northern Iowa website. If you just put gerontology into the search, you'll get all of our, our gerontology information about what's going on in our program. And we do have a link to a video about careers in aging. Um, and that may be useful to some individuals who are thinking about a career change or maybe just setting out on their journey. Okay, wonderful. Well, I thank you both for being part of our show today. It was an interesting conversation, and um, I look forward to talking with you more in the future. And again, for those of you listening, um, please feel free to, to reach out to uh, Dr. Elaine Ashbaugh or Michelle uh, Remold, and um, they would love to talk with you further, I'm sure. So you two have mm-hmm. a great day, and we will. And I'll see you very soon, Michelle, with opening up the Memory Cafe. <laughs> I'll see yep. you tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Thanks, Bye guys. Bye. Yeah, thank you. you. Wonderful. Well, what a what an interesting conversation. Um, before I introduce our next guest, I just want to um, highlight um, some some uh, information for you all. Um, uh, if you missed our last radio show, uh, it was on the 13th, and we kind of did a Mother's Day tribute. And so, uh, you know, if you want to listen to that, we had people call in, and I talked about my own mother as well, um, kind of life lessons that I learned. Our next show next Tuesday is going to be kind of a love story of dementia care, and I think you will we'll really enjoy that. Um, Jane Sweeney, the author of Caregiver, My Love Story, Facing Dementia, um, um, she'll she'll talk about the the powerful and and challenging you know times that she went through and she's kind of pulled this uh, caregiver friendly book she calls it together. Our last dementia chats was also on the 13th and we talked about the purple angel symbol and the movement and um, the recent Napa meeting as well as dementia friendly communities and and what they are. Our next dementia chats again, which is a free webinar will be on the 27th and if you go to alzheimerspeaks.com go to our about page you can just click on the dementia chats and learn more about how to enter that again it is it is free or you know become a member on facebook of dementia chats as well on the blog, Michelle uh, Remold, who is just with us, our intern, uh, wrote a great article on forget-me-nots, the flowers, and um, you know how they came to be and why they're important. And it was just a, a really nice article. We also posted on there a new film that embraces the reason to live. And 
um, there's really some wise uh, words to learn from in this uh, like 17 minute film and I would highly encourage anybody to go watch that uh, Colin McDonald um, with uh, Starlet uh, Lodge uh, just pulled this together and it's, it's absolutely incredible but it really asks us what are you doing that gives you a reason to live and what are you doing to help others um, connect to their reason to live both I think again very very powerful powerful lessons um, for us um, if you are not familiar with the Purple Angel Project and would like to get involved on how you can um, support it um, and again, when I say support, this doesn't cost you any money, but how you can raise awareness using this uh, new global symbol for dementia, please shoot me an email. You can just go to alzheimerspeaks.com, click on the um, contact button, or go to the About page and learn a little bit more about the Purple Angel uh, program. And uh, from there, you can email me as well. If you're looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, go to Alzheimer's Disease International. They are the organization of all Alzheimer's associations worldwide. Um, if you are looking for a holistic approach, check out Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. Um, there you will learn a lot about food and meditation and exercise. Um, the Alzheimer's Studies, uh, if you go there on Facebook, you'll find out about two trials. One is a new trial for frontal temporal lobe dementia. Uh, the other one is their tau trial, which is in its third trial. And then don't forget about the Lewy Body Association, the Frontal Temporal Lobe uh, Association, and the Aphasia Association, which a lot of people don't even know what aphasia stands for, but um, it's when people are having trouble speaking, which many times can, can be an issue. And um, so let me go ahead and introduce our, our next guest here. I'm very excited to have her with us. Marla Kurtz has been working in the field of therapeutic recreation for over 18 years, and she has been the president and CEO of Ray of Sunshine, which is a private practice in home custom-tailored one-on-one therapeutic recreation intervention. And she's located in Canada, and she's been uh, in her private business for eight years now. And the main population that she works with are people suffering from various forms of dementia and, uh, and Alzheimer's. Marla has taken her education, her knowledge, and years of experience and skill set to create an opportunity for those who are unable to participate in community-based programs and bring leisure opportunities to those who are remaining at home and aging in place. This is something that is, is really needed and I think you're going to find fascinating. Ray of Sunshine allows the person with Alzheimer's to connect to their past leisure interests and breaks down the steps of previous activities they enjoyed for optimal success. Through participating, being engaged, motivated, and stimulated choice and decision-making powers, um, they are returned um, to, uh, you know, really being um, embraced as an individual, you know, through these interventions and really feel purposeful. And, and she really sees the, the change in them, as do the families. 
All the programs are customized and designed to reflect an individual's strengths, likes, and choices. Each component is done with the highest level of respect and dignity, which, of course, is, is very important and you'd think would be done all the time, but, but isn't. Um, anxiety, aggression, depression, and boredom decrease while their sense of self-worth and pride um, really returns. Um, she has been on um, Canada TV, radio. She's been published in numerous newspapers and magazines. And she's just really a strong advocate with a message, you know, that a person with dementia or memory loss or any type of cognitive impairment has the right um, to be loved and respected, and um, you know they can have, they can live um, a, a great life. And she can teach people how to do how to do this. So we're going to talk about how to stay connected and how to engage. So welcome, Marla. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Well, great. I'm I'm glad to have you on the show here. How's the weather up in Canada? It's, it's nice again in Minnesota. It was horrible here yesterday. <laughs> oh, we're having back and forth weather, but we're hoping to have spring soon. It's yeah. been cold, but it's warmer. But uh, believe it or not, we had a really harsh winter. So now people at least are being able to go outside. Uh-huh. Well, that's that's nice. Yeah, it's supposed to. They were talking maybe up to 80 today, and yesterday was just cold. And oh, we got so much rain. I don't even know how much fell, but it was a lot. So it's <laughs> nice that the, the weather has changed once again. Well, I'm really interested in the work that you're doing, and the approach that you're taking is really different um, from anybody that I've heard out there. You know, most people, it's uh you you come to me and you know we'll do we'll do some therapy here but you are not only going out to the house um but you are really bringing you know recreational therapy um inward um at a level I've never seen before so can you can you talk to us a little bit of you know, why did you decide to to build your business the way you did? Was it because no one else was doing it and you just saw the need? You know, when when I was in my um, program in school, I really felt, and being in different organizations and doing my field placement in a tremendous institution here in Toronto, Ontario, uh, the Baycrest Centre, I said, there's got to be a way to reach out to other people. And so I started to develop my Ray of Sunshine business while I was still a student in therapeutic recreation and keeping it on the back burner. It was more, at that time, I was looking more at a concierge type of um, business, but I started to develop how how are people being reached. If they're not coming into the organizations, if they're not coming to adult day programs, if they're not connected to their church or their synagogue, their sisterhoods, what are they doing all day? And what I really started to realize is, even back then, there's a tremendous amount of people who are remaining at home with nothing to do all day long. And how can we get them reconnected, re-engaged. And really, it was 
um, by chance that I started to create a portfolio of programs that I felt one day would be the right impetus for me to do my business. Mm -hmm. And upon graduation and my two years of field placement, I was actually hired by my institution where I worked for over 12 years in different capacities and gained a tremendous amount of knowledge and insight from a medical perspective, from a person-centered care perspective, and took all that information and said, okay, it's the right time. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really know how to begin, and um, I was fortunate enough to have someone hear about what I wanted to do and said to me, there are so many people who need these services. And I said, well, I just, I just don't know how to begin. And the individual said, well, when there's a will, there's a way. And three hours later, this individual called me and said, I've called the first three people who are interested in your services and begin. And from that day forth, I I began. Wow, that's that's exciting. That's exciting. Can you tell us, you know, how how do most people, you know, what is your impression of most people who suffer from Alzheimer's or depression spend their day when they're living at home versus what you can what you can do to to shift that for them? What are some of the downfalls that you see that that are kind of normal traps for for families? Well, families are so overburdened today with our situation of what I call the the tsunami. Of, of Alzheimer's and dementia taking place, that families are in a crisis situation most often. They're trying to arrange um, a safe environment, caregivers that will treat them, their families, and suffice all the needs that need to be done, the immediate physical needs, and trying to manage all the medications and medical appointments, and they forget through no fault of their own, that this individual is sitting at home, not being stimulated or motivated or engaged throughout the day. Mm-hmm. So how they're kind of given lack of independence and choice and decision-making powers, even being in their own home, they, kind, they lose their voice. They are told from the moment that they wake up, Till the moment that they go to bed, what to do and how to do it. Through no fault of the caregiver or the family, everyone works very hard to make sure that the person is the best possible way they can, but everything requires them to just follow suit. Whether it's being told how, you know, it's time to get up, get dressed, take your medication, eat your breakfast, All the tasks need to be completed, but really, throughout that whole process, there could be major change in choice and decision-making power. For example, how we do it at Ray of Sunshine, we do a lot of caregiver training sessions for families and the hired caregiver um, person in the home. Instead of just saying, okay, now is the time to get dressed, lay out two different outfits on the bed 
and give that person the opportunity to choose what they are going to dress in that day. Once you give back a person their voice and their choice and decision-making power, their increased self their self-esteem increases tremendously. They feel like they're part of society. Someone wants to know my opinion. I count. And through our different interventions that we've created, they are given that choice and decision-making power in every aspect of the program to how, where they sit, how they uh, administer any type of material, if they choose to do the program or not, and breaking down this barrier that people who suffer from dementia and Alzheimer's can't accomplish. They mm-hmm. can do so much throughout their day. Everything can be, as much as possible, their choice. It's learning responsibility respect, dignity, and a certain language that's going to empower them. Yeah, I I agree. We've got um, one person here in our chat box that says, um, is there a photo of of Marla in the the black jacket with the long brown hair? And I'm like, yep, that's her. And she says, this is so interesting. There's such a huge need for this. Um, She's been testing out tablet computers, which are easy to operate and connect to the Internet, capable of video conferencing. Um, And she's going to fund a pilot study with her own money to buy 10 tablets to give people with early onset as a trial to see if by connecting with others through video conferencing, um, if they can, you know, if that can help them find purpose in terms of connecting with their cohorts and um, education and churches and businesses. I mean, all of, all of those types of things. Well, any thoughts on, on using electronics? Um, That's very that- interesting. I had um, one of my, my first um, individuals that I worked with, he actually had his master's in agriculture from a university, and we, I was doing some computer training with him. He was very interested in finding about, out about the university as it was that day, and we did some research together on the computer and found his picture in an archive and we formulated a letter together to the president of the university that asked for all the archival pictures of that year so that he could have them and show them to his family and that he could make they they wanted his opinion and they even invited him to um one of the graduations and we connected with his past which was tremendous. And um, the fact that he was, you know, a master's in uh, agriculture and then he became quite a large builder um, and developer carried through, but it was his whole passion that he got to speak to a group of individuals through the use of, of technology about, hey, I was there way before you, I have a lot to offer. Look what I've become, and I'm an alumni, and I'm an important person. And when we got that, and I sent this letter with him, not really knowing if anyone is even going to pick up the letter, within a day, the president himself sent back this letter and said, we are so honored that you considered writing to us 
and that you took the time to show. And we are now going to try and connect more past alumni from your cohort and age to see if we can do something to teach the young why this university was so important back then. Wow. It made him, it, it lightened up his entire day. Entire day, his family was blown away. His company individuals were blown away. And this gave him such a purposeful act that he wanted to learn more about the computer. So I taught, we taught him together how to look onto different sites of interest, um, the philanthropic uh, institutions that he supported. And this gave him a buildup of component of his day that he became technologically focused, whereas before the computer was in his room and nothing was happening. Mm -hmm. wow. So that's, that was my first experience with how technology can really assist. It was, I was blown away, absolutely blown away. And I was really impressed with the university taking the time and noticing, appreciating and respecting someone of his age core cohort, stature. They didn't have to do that. But that's mm -hmm. what people need to do. People need to realize the elderly have so much to teach us, no matter what their state or cognitive abilities are. They have experienced so much in life that we can't even fathom what they've gone through. From the changes that they've seen throughout their lives and how they're part of our world today, it's an amazing thing. And if people took the time to speak to people with a cognitive impairment, with Alzheimer's, with dementia, they would see that they're, it's not very hard to communicate when you use a respectful language in a dignified way and you want to use their intelligence and you want to appeal to their intelligence and you want to make sure that they have something to teach us. And that's what we strive to do at Ray of Sunshine. They have a skill. We have to break down that skill and make sure that we're all learning together for a mm -hmm. successful intervention. Yeah, that's, that's very important, um, very important um, for people to be able to to learn and connect. Um, I think that that's a, that's a great story. Can you tell us, um, you know, one of the, one of the problems, you know, with dementia can be the fact that, that, um, you know, when it comes to decision making, sometimes we just ask too complicated of questions. So can you, you know, kind of describe to people how you maybe break things down so tasks are smaller um, for people to to engage like I and I'm assuming well that you that's certainly don't want to set you don't want to set anyone up for failure so you don't want to give 10 different options to an individual who might be suffering from Alzheimer's or a form of dementia like I mm -hmm. said, you want to do one or two choice opportunities. And, for example, when we walk into someone's home, the first thing we observe is where is that person sitting? So we ask, is this the place that you sit during the day? 
and they say, no, that's really my chair over there. So the caregiver takes that cue, places the person in that chair, and the next thing we ask is permission. Can, mm-hmm. Would it be okay if I took a chair and sat beside you? So that's how a question can be formed. If you're going to ask questions about, you know, so what did you have for breakfast today? That's not going to happen. They're not going to remember. But if you're looking at them and they're in the moment, you want to ask the questions that they're going to be able to understand and answer. Ask them simply, how would you like to um, do something different today? Would you like to try something today, perhaps? I'll give you an example. Uh, We were working with an individual who was an avid fisherman, and he used to go many, many different places to fish. Now the person is homebound. Now the person has um, a memory impairment, can't really get on a boat and go all different places fishing. So we adapted a fishing intervention program, and we simply said, we'd really like to take you fishing, but today we know that we can't do that. However, we brought a fishing component for you today. Would it be okay to try that? And everybody around the room who was watching said, oh, my gosh, this just won't work. He's going to say no. Well, his eyes lit up and said, let's give it a try. Now, it was an adaptable fishing pole with obviously not real fish, but in that moment, he really felt like he was fishing somewhere. His eyes, his face, he was in that perfect moment of zen that we call complete leisure experience. Didn't matter that he had a cognitive impairment. Didn't matter that he was no mobility and and bound to a wheelchair. Didn't matter that he was in his own home. At that moment, he truly felt he was fishing. Mhm. And that's all that that's all that matters. Sometimes I think we think that, you know, if we break something down, you know, people might think, well, they're going to think that it's childish. Um, you know, because it's not the real thing. And I think a lot of it has to do with how we present it. Well, how you have to present things to an adult who is older than yourself is in a very dignified, respectable language. And I think most people don't realize or forget that someone who's older than you deserves that respect, no matter what their cognitive level is. They, there has to be respect for the elders. It's, it's a biblical saying, right? Respect your elders. Mm-hmm. And if you show them the respect and you talk in a dignified adult-like manner, the response will be a posi- most often a positive response. If you're going to talk to, to an individual in a childlike manner, they're not going to feel empowered. They're not going to feel motivated. Why would someone want to do something when they're being told what to do or they're being treated as a child? They're, they're not children. Mm-hmm. Can Yet you they're give not our- useless individuals anymore. They really have so much that they can do. 
Can you give our audience some um, what you would say would be inappropriate ways to say the same thing um, so that people have examples? I, I know a lot of times people will talk in a childish voice or, you know, use different names. Are, are there any examples specific that you could give us? Um, many times uh, caregivers, for no fault of their own, uh, try very hard to motivate their their person that they're working with. Um, and people don't realize the language is so important. So instead of um, a successful, um, what's the term, I guess, once an intervention is done and you say to an individual, you know, that was really a wonderful thing. I really am happy that you were able to do that as opposed to someone clapping and saying, yay, good for you, Grandpa. You know, there's there's a whole different language. You you get your back up when you hear someone clapping and using that high-pitched childlike voice. Mm-hmm. So and, and I would, that's, I would that's imagine, a big thing. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine there'll be, you know, you have to know your person too because there might be some people that really respond to that as well, you know, depending on where they are in the disease. So I think um, it's always you have to know your person. Um, Or, you know, sometimes it's language. People won't use a name and they'll say honey or sweetie or um, and those things to some people can be really condescending as well. Um, I think. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, there's always a way that when we enter a home and we introduce ourselves, uh, the first thing we ask is, what is the name of the person we're going to be working with? Well, right away, they're a Mr. or a Mrs. until they identify, oh, call me John or call me Robert or you can call me Claire. You know, you have to take the cues from from them themselves. Mhm. It's very important to address them the way that they would want to be addressed. Yeah. Now when you when you talk with families, you know, do you ask them outright, you know, what are you doing to provide kind of leisure opportunities for them or purposeful engagement um to see what's been done and and then how how it how it's been received? Most often, families will contact us and say, my parent's doing nothing all day. My grandfather does nothing all day. My grandfather used to do this, this, and this, and now he just sits in the house. Uh, We used to take him out. Now he doesn't want to leave. He used to play chess. Now he can't do that anymore. My grandmother used to play uh, rummy, and now she can't remember how the cards work. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, well, what else are you doing throughout the day? And unfortunately, 90% of the time is, well, there's nothing to do. I don't Mm -hmm. know what to do. And this is where we train the families to engage with with the person. And so what we try and do is get as much information from the family member about what they did together with their parent, their grandparent, their spouse, and see what that activity was and see how we can reconnect and 
get that activity going, even if it's not at the highest level previously, how we can get them going at that same activity. Mm-hmm. I'll give you an example. I had uh, a couple who were avid tennis players. And then arthritis struck one spouse and a different illness struck another spouse that made him really not able to stand up and his balance was off, plus a form of dementia. And here Mm -hmm. are two people that played tennis together all their lives. So we went into the house and we determined the upper body strength is still there because they played tennis for so many years and they had the ability still to understand how to volley uh, a racket. So we took very light badminton rackets with a balloon. Mm -hmm. And what we did is we retaught each one to use the volleying and the balloon and then we created in the home a makeshift tennis court with just a net and they Mm -hmm. were both seated and every part, every day, for a component of their day, they had their tennis playing. And that gave them a chance to work with each other. It gave them a chance to expand their energy. It gave them a chance to still maintain some level of independent leisure activity. And it connected them to what they loved most, which was participating in a tennis type of environment. Mm-hmm. And when the families walked in and saw them doing this, it was their whole world opened up again. Then the discussions came in about which tennis um, rackets they used. Everybody brought down from the attic the tennis rackets, the uh, the tennis outfits, and the family got very involved in, okay, this is their time for tennis. And once that activity was in session and it was completed, the the couple's level of self-satisfaction, accomplishment, and um, the outcome made them much different throughout the day. Staff at the home reported that medication was able to be administered in a much more calm way. Everybody wanted to participate in the meal after because they had had something engaging, stimulating to look forward to throughout that day. Mm-hmm. What What is the reaction to families when you come in and um, institute these, these changes? Um, what, what do families say? Families are so nervous when they contact us because they believe that their family member will never do anything. We won't even get in through the door. They won't, they'll see that this is so, in their eyes, demeaning and um, they're very nervous to present this opportunity. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we go in and can do a completely oral assessment that we've created Mm -hmm. in a non-clinical 
non-threatening environment. I think that's really the main component of any type of successful opportunity, no matter who you are, if you're a grandchild or if you're a a spouse or um, a, a daughter or a son of someone who's suffering. It can't be threatening. Don't ask the person, you know, what day is it today? Don't ask the questions that they can't answer. Have a discussion on what's familiar to them. Ask them their opinion on something that they definitely have a large-based knowledge of. So when we go in, we try to get them comfortable in engagement. And through that, we're able to, through the questions that we ask, which is in the form of a conversation, we're able to assess so many of the things that are questionable in their lives when we speak with our voice. Are they able to understand? Are they following the question? Is there a hearing impairment going on? Are they following what we're saying? Everything can be assessed in a non-clinical, non-threatening environment. Mm-hmm. Uh- it's uh, it's interesting that you say, you know, families don't think that there's anything that they can do. And I think part of it is, um, again, the lack of education um, in terms of the disease and the fast pace of life and the overcommitment that we have, um, you know, to life, um, you know, where there's just not much time. Um, and so people are trying to, like, figure out how to how to squeeze things in. And um, it, it's very interesting. Um, Alva has just written in here. She says, you know, I'm 68 year, years old, and she just detests it when someone, a store clerk, calls her sweetie, um, which we were kind of talking about before. Please don't call Absolutely. me sweetie because it sounds condescending to me, um, like you're speaking to a three-year-old. Not all of my friends agree and say that it's a southern thing and not meant to be disrespectful. Um but she's just saying it's better to avoid using a term like that um, because it can be tricky, um, depending on absolutely. Who, who when you're I when when we we train family and caregivers, you know, nobody is cute, nobody is adorable. Mm-hmm. They're not children and they're not pets. When I hear people, even out in the streets, and I say, "Oh, look at that cute cute person," I I turn around and I say. That's really not respectful. I had a conversation with some young people who were interested in knowing about the field of therapeutic recreation. And my first question is, do you enjoy being around older people? And so many kids respond with, yeah, they're so cute, they're so adorable, they're so yummy. Wrong language to use. I stop them Mm -hmm. right away. That's my back gets right up and I say, you know, you cannot be involved with someone when you don't have that level and lack of, of respect. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I try to educate people um, wherever I go about how important it is. You know, when you're in the field, you can see who's in the stores, like you were talking about before, who's in the store that can't find the the canned goods that they're looking for, who's at the cash register, who's at the bank that doesn't know how to form the line properly. You get to know the signs and symbols of people. And you want to show an example that people out there today, especially through 
Alzheimer's um, speaks, I've learned so much about the fact that there are really people out thriving in the community who are suffering from different levels of dementia and Alzheimer's but are being viable members of society, and they do need our assistance, and we all should look around and see someone who can't open the door, someone who can't make change at the cash register, recognize it and assist. Yeah. Yeah, it, I, I don't know why we're so afraid um, to do that. And, you know, and I think part of, you know, the whole verbiage thing, um, you know, we have to train people on what is respectful and what's not because they really, I think, truly don't don't know um, and they they think they're being helpful and they think they're being respectful, and it's it's not always taken that way. So again, it it gets down to knowing your audience, and Definitely. when we don't when we don't slow down enough to know our audience, then we we take the risk of of not being dignified um, and possibly harming somebody, you know, or hurting their feelings, which I think many times is not the intent, um, but can happen um, when we just when we just don't slow down enough um, to think and to process or even, or even to watch someone's reaction. You know, we're just, we're so wrapped up in what we're doing that we forget um, to take in the critical information that that many times is non-verbally transmitted to us, and mm-hmm. you know we just we need to we need to take much be much more aware of that. Um, Elva also had noted she said one of her favorite books is called Contented Dementia, and it was a book written by Oliver James in the UK, and it was based on his mother-in-law. She said it's a great work. And it has wonderful information on how to communicate what we do wrong. Um, she She's asking, do you think people with dementia would want to voluntarily wear a color of a, a color of silicone bracelet that would identify them so clerks could take a little extra time? Um, you know, would that be helpful or would that identify them as targets for unscrupulous people? And I think that that's a real risk. Um, because, you know, as this population becomes more and more pronounced, um, I think the scammers are going to be out there, you know, looking for it. So I, I, to me, I think we have to be very careful on how how, that's dis- how that information <clears throat> is disseminated. Do you have any thoughts on that, Marla? You know, it's interesting. When we work with um, people who are suffering from Alzheimer's, I like to ask, and we like to ask the families, are they registered with the Alzheimer's Society? Mm-hmm. I would say 99% aren't because mm-hmm. of that stigma of they won't wear that bracelet. Mm-hmm. And we are all more concerned with the safety factor. If someone should get up in the middle of the night and their home is not you know, secure and they get walk out the door, how are they going to find that individual? And that's one component of it. Um, I think that if someone was wearing a bracelet that identified themselves, I would like to believe that people would recognize that they need assistance, but in the society that we're in today, the lack of knowledge and education and uh, the use of... uh, 
the fact that people really don't take the time to respect and care about the elderly, I think it would backfire and it would be a very uh, dangerous type of uh, situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do. And, you know, I, I think when it comes to the bracelets, too, that, you know, this is a, it, it's something that shouldn't be one-sided. I think, um, I think both sides need to wear these bracelets, you know, the care partner and, and the person with dementia, if you're going to do something on that order. And, you know, it can be there's the UBS bracelets that are out there. So in an emergency, somebody can plug it in and get some information. But I even think on those, you know, definitely no Social Security numbers, no home address. You can you can put in other right. information, and you can put in phone numbers for others for them to talk to. Um, but we have to be really, really careful. Um, you know, there's so much hacking going on, you know, with with all of our information on the internet, and um, you know, we just we have to be we have to be really careful with that. And I, my my level of trust keeps going down. <laughs> I hate to say, I unfortunately I believe also. You know, working in the population and, you know, working in the population the majority of the day, which is not really social media connected, which is really tactile, which is really um, calming, makes you truly believe that there is good out there. And when you see the change in a person, someone who you began services for two weeks prior to that could barely keep their eyes open and after connecting with them figuring out what would work for them and walking in that door and their eyes light up and they know that there's going to be purposeful goal-oriented outcome activity-based things happening and looking at their eyes when you're accomplished it makes you kind of feel positive about society in a certain way in the old society i guess is what you want to say um Mm -hmm. it's 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 very rewarding and uh we're very passionate about what we do and what we take on each family you know each person with our heart and we get to know each person that we're able to notice truly behavioral changes and question things that maybe a different stage in the dementia is is um, rearing its ugly head, or perhaps there's something else going on. We have um, we get to know our clientele and the families, and they trust us, and it's it's uh, a really special thing to to see the families watch from the side or from behind that their their person is engaged and motivated and doing things that they didn't really think they could do before or mm-hmm. ever thought they would see them do. And when you see the families connecting in that way and then they're able to follow through and you give them other opportunities to do when you're not there, for example then you know you're really making an impact on their lives. Yeah, 
Yeah, I I agree. So if if families are looking for kind of opportunities and outlets um, to to engage their loved ones at home, and don't know where to start, where where do they start? What what would you recommend that they think about? Do they stop and think about what did they like in the past and, and try to resurrect that? Absolutely. The first that? thing, yeah, the first thing you need to think about is, you know, who. Who was that person that you're looking at now? What were mm-hmm. the most important things to them in their lives? Was it their religion? Was it their beliefs? Was it what likes did they have? What did they do as in their former employment that mm-hmm. you could try and figure out? Or as we do, we do a lot of uh, phone consulting now um, and really help a lot of families throughout North America try and design a program that they can do together. And what we're finding now and what you were speaking about in the previous hour is that the younger generation, believe it or not, really want to get engaged and learn and be involved with their grandparent. And we're doing a lot of intergenerational program activity today they are more accepting to work with their grandparents sometimes than the immediate daughter or son, which is a very interesting aspect right now. It's very daunting and overwhelming to see your parent, who was your rock, who was your mentor, now become your, what's the term, uh, your charge, right? This is someone mm-hmm. that you need to look after. And some parents, some children take it on in stride and they really do everything in their power. And the families that have worked with us, they turn themselves around 360 that their whole lives are completely different just by changing a few things that they do throughout the day and how it's done. Whereas other families just sit there and say, well, it's they're not the same person, and I I can't be around it, and um, mm-hmm. that's where we're able to come in and facilitate these things. But the child, the grandchildren today are really interested, whether it's because there is access about Alzheimer's, dementia, aging on the internet, which is a positive aspect of the technology, that they're able to see that they can do things. And what's really important for families to to know is it doesn't have to be a long period of time. Three to five minutes of a really positive experience, whether it's having a conversation, listening to music, reading together, um, it depends, you know, what their levels are, is much more impactful than sitting and staring at the person for 40 minutes mm-hmm. and getting uncomfortable and saying, okay, what can I do? What, what should we do? Or asking them, so what would you like to do right now? Well, they're not going to be able to answer that, but if you provide an, an outlet, an opportunity, and present it in the right way, most likely they're going to pick it up and start doing it. Mhm. Wonderful. Well, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. I think you've given people a lot of uh great ideas and um 
And how how can they get a hold of you? What's the what's the best mode for people to reach the out to you? The best way is to um, shoot an email to us at info, info at rayofsunshine.ca, and let us know what you're doing presently and what we can further enhance. We have designed um, programs that we've sent to families. Um, After some phone consulting and figuring out, we guide people on what type of um, materials people could use to do their own interventions. Uh, We've done Skype programs. And there's so much that you can do. Um, What I always often tell people is you're sitting in the kitchen and your parents sitting there in the kitchen and they're sitting at the table with nothing to do and you're putting the dishes in the dishwasher. Engage with them. Have a conversation. And put something that's not going to be, for example, breakable in front of them with a tea towel. If you have to cue them, then say, would it be okay if, you would dry this pot for me, for example. Most likely that person's going to pick up that pot, take that tea towel, and dry that pot so meticulously because someone has asked them for assistance. Mm-hmm. And through you doing the dishes, them doing the dishes, now they're part, now they're engaged, now they're working together, there's purpose, there's activity. I'm just giving that as a, as a quick example. Things around the home, you're sitting and folding laundry and your parent is just sitting there because the caregiver has gone out, give them a towel to fold. Make mm-hmm. make use of their abilities. Mm-hmm. So there's a question uh, they want to know, um, Is there does insurance cover your services or is it all private pay? So unfortunately... Recreation therapy is, which is a vital component to the continuum of care, as to date has not been able to be acquired for insurance coverage. So it is a private uh, pay component, but we are striving and working together with different uh, organizations now to try and show the insurance companies, and it's really important that people realize that these type of community services should be part of insurance coverage, but until then, it's it's private um, private pay. Fee. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, and that's that's good to know because again, people then can can advocate for that as well. So, well, Marla, we're just about out of time here. So, I really I thank you for for all that you've shared with us. We've got just a couple of minutes. If there's one other point that you want to bring home to people, otherwise, I'll go ahead and just end the show here. I just want to let all the listeners know that no matter what level of someone's cognitive abilities are, there's always something that someone can do in an independent fashion. And the, the, just the most important thing is to speak to someone and use appropriate language in a dignified and respectful way, and you will see a huge change in that person. Because if there's someone who's 
just sitting around and not doing something, there is so much with the right tools and guidance and most importantly love, you can change a person's life daily, just like we do at Ray of Sunshine. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your time and and well, um, thank really you. love, love the work just, you're doing. It's so refreshing to to be in, in an audience of people that really want to enhance and enrich people's lives. I think it's so important. And I personally try to advocate the fact that therapeutic recreation is another wonderful field and discipline to help change people's lives and people should really look into the fact that this discipline and profession is so much more than just uh, leisure there is a huge component out there and also like you were saying any field in geriatrics people are going to be the um, getting jobs in the field and there's a huge need out there and I encourage anyone who wants to know anything about therapeutic recreation, they should go to the American Therapeutic Recreation Association and look on it because the career opportunities are endless. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Marla. Okay, thank you very much. And I want to thank our audience for um, listening and participating in the conversation today. It's always wonderful to hear from you. Um, Our next show, again, will be next Tuesday, the 27th. And we hope that you can join us for that one. It's going to be with author Jane Sweeney, the author of Caregiver, My Love Story Facing Dementia. Um, She's uh, quite a powerful powerful, insightful woman, woman. so I think that you will really enjoy her uh, a lot. Next week, we will also have our Dementia Chats webinar as well. In the meantime, if you're interested in joining the Purple Angel Project, shoot me an email at lori, L-O-R-I, at alzheimersspeaks.com, and alzheimers and speaks are both plural, .com. If you're looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, go to Alzheimer's Disease International. And don't forget to check out Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation for um, some holistic ideas on how to how to deal with dementia and the Alzheimer's studies on uh, or the Alzheimer's uh, team on Facebook for some trials. They've got a new one for frontal temporal lobe and also their tau trial. Until next week, uh, we will talk with you uh, very soon and have a, have a blessed week. Thank you all. And don't forget to like us. Bye now. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors. From fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.